Hi, my name is Boaz Levin. The title of the book I am about to read is On Distance. It is the third issue in the next spring series edited by Laura Preston and designed by Nuno De Luz and Gonzalo Sena from Atlas Proyectos. It's co-published by Adam Art Gallery, Te Pataka Toy, Victoria University of Wellington. Each edition in the series is bilingual. This issue is German-English, with translations provided by Eva Wilson. Editorial assistance was provided by Sriwana Sprong, and the only image in the book is by Oraib Tukan. I'm currently in Jerusalem, but based in Berlin. This commissioned collection of readings is being developed and housed by Laurel Duty Library Supply and Los Angeles Contemporary Archive, LACA. Preface A note wavers, bends, stretches, and finally breaks. Blue a deviation from the 12-note chromatic scale has often been described in synesthetic terms as a coloring of the notes, a bluing of harmony. Blue is the blues. Novelist Ralph Ellison associated with the blues a lyricism born from the desire to keep the painful details and episodes of experience alive in one's aching consciousness, to touch its jagged grain and to transcend it. The musical genre wavers around blueness as a condition, a color, and as a container for this crossing over. Blue is a blur, screen, sea, song. Isn't blue a fugitive pigment? asks poet Fred Moten. Is blue a proxy for, in proximity but not quite identical with, black? responds Boris Levin writing from Berlin for the third review in the next spring series. But then, who are you looking at, and from where? Let's play it again. If the blues is considered by musicologists as an expression of structure, and in particular, a certain harmonic structure, such a claim is suggestive of reviewing other kinds of structures that determine lives lived and identities given. The reclaiming of the blue harmony has a long history as a modal form, a slur. It is not one blue, but many. There is an analogy here to the way this text has been written. Much like the film Havari of 2016, directed by Philip Schaffner and produced by Merle Kruger, this essay is structured around encounters both metaphoric and real. And just as the film took a ready-made clip documenting a maritime meeting and from it conjured a kaleidoscopic narrative of lives that could have crossed paths at sea, Levin's text evolves around Havari, shifting and drifting in and out of view from a critical perspective. The idea of writing on distance came both from the film and from the experience of living in Berlin as a foreigner. From considering the reality of what historian Timothy Garton Ash calls the post-migrant condition. A life split mentally and emotionally. A heart that is always in several places at once. A longing from family and friends afar and concerns for other places could be seen due to and because of distance as symptomatic of our times. We've made ourselves distance from choice or necessity, through mass migration or constant mediation. And in a world increasingly plagued by climate crisis, 
a planetary challenge like no other and a forceful reminder of human interdependence, it is timely to be reckoning with distance, not as an obstacle for action or an excuse for inaction, but to view it as a common condition for thinking through the political again. The following review considers a film first seen as it at a conference some years ago, recalled, exhibited, and rewatched while writing. Other readings, screenings, exhibitions, and conversations have accompanied, sometimes inspired, these enclosed considerations on distance, on structure, on blue, but none more so than calling home. Laura Preston with Boris Levin. The film begins with a code. The geographical coordinates 3728.6 N. 0003.8E. When I later look up this obscure string of numbers and letters, 37 degrees 28 minutes and 6 seconds north, 0 degrees 3 minutes and 8 seconds east, I find a spot in the Mediterranean, in the midst of its blue sea. Not a place, no more than a point, an intersection of two axes, all horizon scroll out to find land. The image is grainy, moving between the just out of focus to the limits of the pixel. A boat or raft, and on it people, just recognizable, silhouetted. The surface of the blue water is wavy, slightly. The camera too. A clock ticks in unison with the changing frames. With every frame the boat moves a touch, tick. The waves breaks, talk, the sea tick, the boat doubles, ghosts, talk, the boat refracts, water, tick, blue fills the screen, havari. The coordinates of geography form on an imaginary grid of longitude and latitude. The equator represents the zero point of latitude. Every line above it represents one degree north, hence N. Every line below, one degree south, hence S. The geographic prime meridian functions as the zero degree of longitude. Nowadays it passes through Greenwich, England, though this was not always the case. Every line to the right or left represents one degree east or west, but this lattice is loosely woven. Most points on earth fall between the lines, and hence each degree is again divided into 60 minutes, 360 being a multiple of 60, which in turn are divided into seconds. To locate, to map, is to sieve through the grid, flawed in its very symmetry, to find an intersection, a dot, a note, the cut. Film is truth. 24 times a second and every cut is a lie, states a character in Jean-Luc Godard's Le Petit Soldat. It's one of those brilliant Godardian aphorisms that seems to make total sense at first until you realize it falls in on itself, that it is more paradox than truism. For if every cut is a lie, shouldn't it follow that the film is a lie 24 times a second? What to do with that short, imperceptible cut between seemingly indexical imprints? The lie between the truth, or for James Baldwin, 
the questions that have been hidden by the answers. What if one were to stretch the moving image to coincide with the pulse of time, one frame per second, that is, rather than 24? It takes only a couple of frames to register that the synchronization of the frame rate of Havari to a clock is unusual. It suggests we are viewing the film at a rate of one frame per second, in other words, 24 times slower than the cinematic frame rate, which allows for a persistence of vision, that flicker fusion of moving image. As viewers, we become increasingly aware of the cut lurking between, or is it behind, every truth. We also become attuned to the film's own secret role as a keeper of time, what in film speak is referred to as real time, which in fact would be best called film time. There is, of course, nothing real about the filmic construct of real time. Havari, its title stems from a German nautical term for shipwreck, whose origins are to be found in the Arabic awar, meaning damaged or broken, remains just below the threshold of cinema and its illusion of movement. It's barely a film, barely more than a slideshow. Or perhaps it is all the more film since it reveals its own filmness. For the closer the frame rate is synchronized with the passing of seconds, the more aware we become of film's artifice and the waiting involved in its viewing. The clock gives way to a radio transmission. A coast guard is heard through a sea of static. This also takes time. It's difficult to understand what is being said, to pass signal from noise. There is a murmur of conversation and various beeping sounds associated with analog telecommunication. Pulses, clicks, the intricate codes and protocols of information exchange of machines conversing. Someone asks to change the channel. The white noise recedes and a woman's voice is now audible. She shares a story, a mental image, a flash of memory. She speaks French with an Algerian accent. Rim is her name, and she talks about how, when she was young, a group of men took her father away. She was forced to give the car keys to them. They stood in her way. Is that Rim on the raft? The radio transmission tunes in again, the crackling of static followed by the call and response protocol of radio. Yes, sir, it's Adventure of the Seas. Go ahead, please. It seems that you have spotted a small craft with immigrants. Is that correct? Yes, sir, that is correct. Could you please give us the position of the small boat? Yes, sir, the position is... In another space, another time, the sound of pouring water, hot coffee or tea. Okay, okay, we understood. Stand by for a while. The sound of a domestic scene comes more clearly into view, into audibility. A kitchen, a counter, steps, the clinking of china, and a phone being dialed. Greetings in Arabic, peppered with French. Rim is now talking with her partner Abdallah, the sound of distance. They talk of the authorities, of appeals, of time spent waiting for lawyers. All's well, otherwise? Don't you dare tell me about the beach. She laughs. 
The raft floats, fades in and out. A man waves. Abdullah? Now we're outside somewhere. It still does the same blue sea. We hear steps on a dirt road, the sliding shut of a van's door, an engine starting, the ebb and flow and hum of traffic. Rim has to be treated for her severe scoliosis in France. She and Abdullah met in Paris and fell in love. He was deported. They married in Algeria, and because of this, Rim's visa extension was rejected. They've been separated ever since. She, continuing with her treatment in France while trying to appeal her legal status. He, in Algeria, waiting. At times we phone or Skype. It's the only way we can talk. The visual and auditory components of film produce what composer and film theorist Michel Chion calls the audiovisual illusion. That is, we make causal relations between sound and image almost automatically. We listen causally. He describes sound without a source image as acousmatic, a term first used by the composer Pierre Schaeffer. However, in contrast to Schaeffer, Chion writes that acousmatic sound intensify our causal listening. The listener will hunt for the source of this unseen sound, attuned to the minutest clues, often interpreted wrong anyway, that might help identify the cause. Throughout Havari, the relationship between sound and image constantly shifts, as though to challenge our attempts to make causal relations between what we see and what we hear. The film never lets the viewer establish a stable relation. At times, the scene seems more distant, to the extent that the sound seems arbitrary, non-causal, out of sync. At other moments, there is a sense of proximity. Shion describes this process as acoustimization and deacoustimization, sound becoming embodied, traceable to a visible phenomenon, or made all the more distance from it, which in fact it is. Film sound is always off-screen, yet we forge attributions to fulfill narrative. From beginning to end, sound anchors us in the scenes of Havari, reminding us of the geographical coordinates, the political space, the documentary value of the footage. Like the source image, a downloaded YouTube video clip that was then stretched, the radio transmission is an artifact, a trace, and its indexicality brings with it an awareness of the assumptions of causality. It becomes reflexive, too, of the film's duration. It will take the Coast Guard roughly 90 minutes to arrive on site. From this point onward, we wait with the raft. Wait for the rescue. Indeed, Havari is a film about waiting. Like any other film, we wait and watch as the drama unfolds. Yet here, our waiting and watching, our distance, is as much part of the drama as what we are seeing. All that is thought about, all that is left unsaid while viewing, is brought to this blue screen. In Berlin, spring is a great and gradual awakening of all things green. Winter leaves the trees naked, the city barren, and days are so short you start doubting 
if it could ever be otherwise. Then the sun creeps up on you, bringing thinning clouds, gradual warmth, budding trees, birds and their song, and then color, a blue sky and a red heat. When I first moved to Berlin in 2011, spring to me was a novelty. Growing up in Jerusalem, we didn't really have seasons, at least not all four of them. Our year was binary. We had a long, hot summer extending late into October, and then a short, rather unobtrusive winter. If we were lucky, winter meant my father would light our wood stove a handful of times. The faulty fireplace filled the house with enough citrus smoke to make our eyes sting. This was winter. By March, summer would return, and it became hot again, normal. Spring was a brief to non-existent affair. To notice the seasons might sound commonplace, but for those who, like me, hail from the south and thus spent a good part of their formative years in a more or less binary world, winter, summer, and let's admit it, predominantly summer, and today all the more so, this was nothing short of a revelation. To perceive something, and to know it as other, we have to step back, move locations, most often internally. As with perception, sound too needs space to reverberate. And so distance is a prerequisite, both there before and after an encounter. Yet, distance itself is often perceived as problematic viewing in opposition to action, viewing as voyeuristic, as pleasure. You can be emotionally distant, removed, and here prejudice seems to radiate through the term's many negative connotations. Disengaged? If you don't partake, can you really know what's at stake? It is along these fault lines of thought that generations of philosophers at least since Plato's condemnation of the proverbial cave-dwellers glued to the screen of shadowy simulacra have trodden. Whether we like it or not, we are, I've come to believe, distant animals, bound to a form of distant management, a reality of constant mediation. Look at how we love and miss and care through screens through letters and voices carried by winds, pages, rumors, signs. Though perhaps the dichotomy of viewing and acting should be rethought. As philosopher Jacques Rancière states, political emancipation begins when we understand that the self-evident facts that structure the relations between saying, seeing and doing themselves belong to the structure of domination and subjugation. This comes from realizing that spectatorship, by definition, entails an intricate connection of association and disassociation. And I quote, Every spectator is already an actor in her story. Every actor, every man of action, is the spectator of the same story. The act of viewing generates discourse from which it can never be fully disentangled. Far from the chained, docile onlookers envisioned by Plato, Rancière suggests that spectatorship 
can be understood as capable of transcending the limits of individuality from the place of action. I write daily, yet find myself distracted by the torrent of distant news. In Australia, fires have scorched innumerable acres. The media struggles to keep up, to find reference points for the size and breadth of the catastrophe, its speed, and how deadly it is. A fire the size of Switzerland, then Sweden, then which European place next? It remains abstract and, yes, distant. There is the danger of becoming desynthesized, of this becoming the new normal. In the cities of the south, breathing has become painful. This is not a bushfire, it's an atomic bomb, the transport minister tells a local journalist. In India, an amendment has been passed threatening to turn 200 million people into second-class citizens. Back in Jerusalem, half an hour from my parents' home, a Palestinian teenager walks towards a checkpoint in the wrong lane and when he fails to respond to a soldier's call, is shot dead, like so many others. Seven refugees are killed when a boat capsizes in the east of Turkey. Recall the shipwrecked body of a young boy washed ashore on the Greek lands like driftwood. Dear sir or madam, we, the director, producer and co-producers, are writing to inform you of a fundamental change in the concept of the documentary film Havari, working title, by Philip Schaffner, that has emerged over the course of the editing. The changes should be understood as a supplement to an update of the previous letter and concept dated January 6, 2015, you have already received. Each of the shoots was successfully carried out as described in the concept. The video material is available and there is nothing wrong with it on either a technical or artistic level. Yet since October 2014, both the political situation and the way what is happening in the Mediterranean Sea is being disseminated have worsened significantly. We note with grave concern that the images of people in boats risking their lives to secure a future for them and their families as a result of European border policy have become part of our everyday life today, one year later. We are resigned to seeing these images week after week on television. There is an increasing feeling of helplessness, which is at best expressed along the lines of we can't do anything, and at worst, in the sort of fear that has led to arson attacks on refugee housing, also being carried out on a weekly basis. In this situation, we do not want to make an observational essay that ties together the portraits of five people and gives the viewer the chance to superimpose the image of the individual onto that of the anonymous crowd. In this situation, we do not want to make an observational essay that ties together the portraits of five people and gives the viewer the chance to superimpose the images of the individual on that of the anonymous crowd. Philip Schaffner has decided to radically restructure the cinematic space with which the five protagonists come together. At a visual level, the cinematic space is compressed into one single unedited sequence 
that extends across the entire length of the film. It is the footage by Terry Diamond, the short YouTube clip that formed the origin of the Havari project, that seems to us today like the essence of the situation in the Mediterranean in concentrated form. In individual images, the inflatable dinghy with 13 people on board has become an icon for the pictures that appear daily on the news. We are forced to look, to grapple with this perspective from above, with the impossibility of proper recognition, with the silent waving of those on board. The reflections in the water and the slowing down of the material produced ghost images. The dinghy seems to multiply, to elude our grasp, and even disappears from our field of vision in the end. And ultimately, the film doesn't spare us from the tracking shot that leads us to our own position. The huge ship of glass and steel and the tourists staring off into the distance. We are bystanders. We have made ourselves at home in that hall. The film Havari makes us painfully aware of that fact. Wouldn't you want to write about Jerusalem? My mother asks. It's October. Signs of fall. It's growing colder and the days are shorter. I tell her that yes, in a way, I'm writing about Jerusalem. I'm writing about distance. My answer, I sense, isn't entirely satisfying. I tell her that I'm thinking of writing about our Skype conversations. The closeness of distance. She says. She smiles. Or did she say the distance of closeness? I'm reminded of the film, of Rim's conversations with Abdallah, the daily reports about life somewhere else between grinding bureaucratic trivialities. It's the only way we can talk. The teasing. Don't you dare tell me about the beach. What can close mean from so far away? Or being far away when feeling so close? My mother and I fill our text with anecdotes, closeness substituted or fined by texture, the granular details of weather, food, scent. Avery was made in a time marked by so many images, so much footage, and when this profusion of visuality is working against the recognition of political realities. Schaffner and Krüger were seemingly asking how to use the medium of film to overcome certain images, to overcome certain films, to resist. At first, Schaffner and Kruger set out to produce a film that would trace the fate of those involved in the unlikely encounter between an inflatable raft carrying refugees from Algeria to Spain and a cruise ship. The film was to depart from a short YouTube clip they stumbled upon during their research. They procured funds and traveled across Europe and North Africa to shoot a semi-fictionalized narrative. They shot on board a container ship sailing from Algeria to Spain, which could have sailed past the raft, and interviewed the Ukrainian officers and Filipino sailors, both distant from their families, both longing. They shot Rim Ibrir and Abdallah Benamu, lovers separated by the Mediterranean, Abdallah left on a similar raft. They shot the working lives of Guillaume Couture and his wife, Emma, on the adventures of the sea's cruise ship. And they shot in Belfast, where the author of the found clip 
Terry Diamond lives and works as a security guard. Diamond discusses the long hours he spends watching and waiting, his memories from the Northern Ireland conflict, his friend who was shot dead before his eyes, and how that was what he was reminded of as he filmed a YouTube clip. Yet having procured, produced all this footage, Schaffner and Kruger felt, and I quote, an increasing sense of helplessness. It wasn't what they were looking for. Confronted by the mass of images depicting the so-called crisis in the media, images of boats and bodies, stories of those who have made it across and those who didn't, horror stories to engender empathy, the filmmakers returned to Diamond's actual footage, to the image of the raft floating in the sea. It is a sequence that for them is, as they write, the essence of the situation in the Mediterranean in concentrated form. It's still online, and I watch it again. Three minutes and 36 seconds long, it was filmed on September 14, 2012, from the deck of the Adventures of the Seas cruise ship, and uploaded to YouTube two days later. Filmed with an amateur camcorder and uploaded with a 4 by 3 ratio, the video seems sharper but shakier than it appears in Havari. The YouTube descriptions, written by Diamond, reads Refugees in the Mediterranean Sea, September 2012 Royal Caribbean Cruise Liner, Adventure of the Seas, came across them floating in a small rubber boat somewhere close to the Spanish coast. It has 3,387 views and 7 comments. The video starts with the raft floating in a sea of blue, low in the frame. The horizon line is not yet visible and the image is just a blue square of waves. The shot breezes in and out of focus, an erratic handheld camera. Yet its focus, the raft, is nearly static, floating in place. Midway through the clip the camera zooms out to rescale at the horizon line. Sky joins sea and the raft is now a speck, barely visible. The camera pans right and we see, for the first time, the massive vessel of glass and steel from where the image is being filmed. The passengers on the viewing deck clamor on the railing. The camera pans left and we stare at the sun. The lens flares, sending a violet ray across the image. Passengers crowd the railing and watch from this side too. Everyone seems to be watching as the camera zooms back in on the raft. It loses focus. Schaffner and Kruger decided this would be the only footage they would use, the only image of their film, and not to alter it, save for its length and sound. Stretched across 93 minutes using a rate of one frame per second, Havari is the exact length of the recorded conversation between the cruise ship and the Spanish Coast Guard. In viewing this singular raft from the safety of the viewing deck, and by extension from the safety of the cinema, gallery, laptop, we become painfully aware that we are the bystanders the filmmakers speak of. And rather than trying to overcome the distance through the image, Schaffner and Kruger have understood a more profound truth about our mediated relation to the world. 
images won't bring you closer. As Bertolt Brecht wrote, and which was later famously quoted by Walter Benjamin, less than ever does the mere reflection of reality reveal anything about reality. It's already December. We are staying in Berlin for the holidays. Winter is cold, but not as cold as it should be. The city is empty, full as it is with people with ties to other places. In Jerusalem, a brief sighting of belated autumn. My mother shares a photo of the pomegranate tree in the garden, now all yellow apart from four latecomers, sweet fruits blinking crimson. In the botanical garden, water lilies. The sea is the home to the mythical monsters of yore. Those great sea monsters found in Hebrew, Canaanite and Phoenician mythologies. The Tanin, Leviathan and the Babylonian Tiamat. It is also the realm of Poseidon, responsible not only for the sea's unrest but for earthquakes too, whose subterranean waves rock the earth from below. Thales of Miletus believed that dry land floats atop a hidden ocean. As philosopher Hans Blumenberg writes in his beautiful shipwreck with Spectator, despite the fact that humans for the most part are land-bound mammals, seafaring and the shipwreck have long been evoked as a Dasein metaphor, a metaphor for the human condition. The sea and its monsters represent chance, lawlessness, risk, the very limits of human agency but also the prospect of conquest, treasure, quick reward. Seafaring was thus seen as prone to catastrophe and loss, but with the tantalizing promise of high returns. Yet the attributions have changed throughout history, acquired new layers, twists and turns. For a long time, Blumenberg writes, Seafaring was condemned as a foolish endeavor best avoided. It was seen as epitomizing recklessness, the fate of those lost souls who failed to resist temptation and ventured out of bounds. The shipwreck, a warning. The Roman philosopher Lucretius famously wrote that the shipwreck allowed one to comprehend from what misfortune you yourself are free. Spectatorship is here a moral tale. To be an observer, to stand on firm ground, was to be chaste and sovereign and safe. By the mid-17th century, at the height of imperial expansion and conquest, the perception of seafaring altered radically. The sea was still believed to be hazardous and risk inevitable, but simply staying on shore, opting out, spectating, was all but impossible. Seafaring now captured the risk inherent to life itself. Overcoming nature's whims, mastering the sea and nature, was viewed as a human calling. We are all on board. Or as Pascal, prefiguring Nietzsche's later existential turn, would write in his pensée, Vous êtes embarqué. You have embarked. To live is to set sail to subject oneself to fate and to risk, and, if lucky, to reap reward. 
Nietzsche indeed went the furthest, lending the voyage a nihilistic twist. He envisaged life as all horizon with no stable foundation to be found, no harbor, no land, as if Miletus's subterranean waves had awoken from their slumber and surfaced. And I quote, We have left the land and have embarked. We have burned our bridges behind us. Indeed, we have gone farther and destroyed the land behind us. Now, little ship, look out. There is no longer any land. Other writers of the era suggested different understandings of the spectator, which Blumenberg views as a further blurring or collapsing of the boundaries between ethics and aesthetics. Abbe Galliani, writing in 1771, insisted on the importance of the grounded position of the observer rather than their complete dissolution into the blue. It was only from utmost safety could the few indulge in the drama of the seas. In a modern twist to Lucretius' original tableau, Galliani describes the shipwreck and the spectator as sharing, parallel with theatre, the purest illustration of the human condition. The more safely the spectator sits, and the greater the danger he witnesses, the more intense his interest in the drama. This is the key to the secrets of tragic, comic and epic art, he writes. Although Galliani's view may seem to follow Lucretius's description at first glance, Blumenberg notes a fateful and resolutely modern difference. True safety can only be found in viewing at a distance. From this Blumenberg concludes, through the move from seashore to theater, Lucretius's spectator is withdrawn from the moral dimension. He has become aesthetic. Could it be that ethics has been replaced by aesthetics as if by sleight of theatrical hand? And what about politics? Blumenberg goes on to consider Johann Herder's evocation of the shipwreck spectator metaphor in relation to the German public's response to the French Revolution, as if it were a shipwreck on the open foreign sea witnessed from the safety of the shore, he writes. He then quotes a long passage where Herder writes yearningly of maritime exploration. To philosophize about the sky, sun, stars, moon, air, wind, sea, rain, currents, fish, the seafloor, and to be able to discover the physics of all this by oneself. The seafloor is a new earth. Who knows it? What Columbus and Galileo can discover it? What new deep-sea diving voyages and what new telescopes still remain to be discovered in this wide world? Curiously, Blumenberg doesn't address the striking feature that Herder, and in a sense Galliani too, introduced to our blue seas of spectatorship. New media. Herder writes of lenses, telescopes, and the exploration of fathoms and heights previously unknown. To these we could add the press and the newspapers all expanding what spectatorship and shipwreck might mean through extending the emphatic gaze towards distance and places previously unimaginable. How could the German public have so closely observed the French Revolution otherwise, not by watching from across the Rhine, but rather 
by reading news reports that were, for the first time, following in daily. As political scientist Benedict Anderson describes, it was through the development of the print as commodity, and in particular the newspaper, that imagined communities formed. Collective spectatorship, reading the news, the secular man's morning prayer as Hegel called it, and knowing that others were reading it at more or less the same time, was key for the ideological formation of the modern nation-state, along with the advent of representational democracy. An observing subject is both the historical product and the site of certain practices, techniques and institutions and procedures of subjectification. Art historian and critic Jonathan Curry writes, In other words, the notion of the spectator is very much in flux, a terrain constantly challenged, expanded, transgressed, both subjected to technological and political change and contributing to the transformation in turn. When things occur from 2016 by Arrive to Cannes, consisting of a series of conversations with image producers based in Gaza, test this very notion of a permeable spectatorship. As stated in the film's opening title, the collaborators include not only photographers, occasional and professional, but the drivers and fixers that enable these images to be taken and disseminated. It was made over the summer of 2014, the air hot and humid. The film begins with a domestic scene, a boy curled up on a couch of deep green velvet, possibly sleeping. The image is blown up, so much so that what we can see is only a dense mesh of pixels. The camera view scrolls left, then right. A computer cursor hovers as if waiting for instructions. Then upward, a window comes into view, and through the window the night. In the distance, a bright and burning yellow glow, a bomb. The poem's 23 sections end with a call, a refrain, an epitaph. Others before us made a crossing. What was the project you mentioned you wanted to make about Skype? My mother asked me the other day. We'd been talking about a recipe and about our newfound love of turmeric. I put it in rice. It colors everything. She's in a cheerful mood, is studying French, and has taken on writing about her parents. She always wanted to write about her father, about his experience in the camps. She's returned to ceramics. Work too is slowly picking up. She asks about the text, how it's coming along. What is it about again? I'm writing about that film I showed in the exhibition you saw in Heidelberg, remember? About the boat of refugees, which only has one image. What was it about again? I'm writing about that film I showed in the exhibition you saw in Heidelberg, remember? About the boat of refugees, which only has one image. I was thinking, since the film itself is about viewing from a distance, feeling at a distance, that I'd also write about our conversations. Behind her, Minu is lurching, preparing. I like that idea. Maybe we can do it together.